Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Meet Kevin Report. We are on episode 26 of the Meet Kevin Report, and we've got a lot to cover. First, interesting notes coming out in the lawsuit of the Dominion voting machines versus Fox News. Turns out that even individuals at Fox News like Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Tucker Carlson were apparently doubting the election fraud claims, but were worried that if they cast too much doubt on those election fraud uh, claims from the Donald Trump and the Trump administration during the coverage of the election fraud claims post-2020 uh, election, that they would be seen as essentially anti-Republican. So uh, this lawsuit alleges that documents have been shared uh, showing text messages between executives and some of the uh, hosts indicating they didn't believe in the election fraud claims but weren't publicly defending, uh, let's say, the Dominion voting machines uh, for fears uh, that, that they would be ridiculed from, from essentially their base. Now, there are some particular quotes that came out in uh, the lawsuit. For example, uh, Tucker Carlson saying things like, Sidney Powell is lying. Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy, referring, of course, to Rudy Giuliani. It's unbelievably offensive to me. Our viewers are good people, and they believe it. Somewhat referring to the idea that, hey, like we want to take care of the viewers. They believe these election fraud claims, but these people are nuts. And that's Tucker Carlson saying this. Uh, apparently, with producers and exchanges of emails and text messages now uh, reported to uh, in, in this lawsuit. Also, uh, really, you had uh, sort of, it seems like, sort of this, this torn situation where, on one hand, the claims... Uh, we, we, you know, have essentially come across as pretty dang loony. Uh, some of them, especially that I don't think any of us can really uh, forget some of the uh, Rudy Giuliani claims uh, that went on at the time, uh, especially uh, Mr. Giuliani's. Uh, oh boy, what was he? He was standing outside of the uh, uh, the uh, landscaping company, sweating, <laughs> giving this argument uh, that was pretty uh, wild and arcane that Donald Trump had uh, had indeed absolutely won the election, and of course those things ended up getting ridiculed pretty ridiculously. Uh, and now it's interesting that in this lawsuit between Dominion and Fox News, you're starting to see, uh-oh, wait a minute, even the people within the right-leaning media didn't believe some of these election fraud claims, which many of them ended up getting uh, debunked and many of the Donald Trump lawsuits ended up being thrown out. There were also murmurings that even within the Trump administration, people didn't believe uh, in these election fraud claims that this was really just sort of a way to potentially increase the donations for Donald Trump's political purposes and maybe fund his war chest for his next election and that the more drama there was and the more unjust they made it seem uh, that Donald Trump was going through potentially this idea of a rigged election, the more donations they would end up being able to get almost kind of like a business advertising play. So kind of interesting to see some of the latest on uh, the, uh, the lawsuits related to that. Apparently also in other news, there was an airplane that was on its way to New York, and this probably sounds like the most annoying airplane trip ever, but apparently an airplane was on its way from Auckland, New Zealand to New York, and halfway through the trip, the airline decided, well, power is out, at the New York arrival terminal. So let's just halfway through the trip, you turn back to New Zealand rather than diverting to a different airport. Because obviously if people are trying to get to New York, we may as well just make them sit on a plane for 16 hours and go nowhere rather than going to an airport that's maybe, 
I don't know, 30 minutes away <laughs> and not people over from there. It seemed pretty wild, but uh, apparently that's exactly what happened yesterday. So that's pretty unfortunate for those folks. Uh, apparently you also have Duke Juan, the founder of Terra Luna, 31 years old. He uh, obviously, uh, you know, led <laughs> essentially the collapse of Terra Luna. Apparently he was slowly siphoning Bitcoin, uh, at least according to an SEC allegation. The SEC is now alleging that he slowly transferred 10,000 Bitcoin into a cold storage wallet, then slowly took money from that cold storage wallet and moved it over to, uh, uh, oh, audio is not great today. There we go. <laughs> this should make the audio substantially better. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, there we go. Anyway, uh, then slowly moved money over from this cold storage wallet to uh, uh, a Swiss bank account where essentially he was able to transfer the Bitcoin to cash. And now he's a fugitive on the run. Uh, South Korean officials who are hunting for him think he might be in Siberia, uh, but uh, he's essentially vanished from, uh, from, from public uh, appearance uh, entirely. 31 years old and probably made off with somewhere between 250 to 500 million dollars of Bitcoin. That's pretty crazy. Uh, okay, so then, uh, so that gives us some some wild uh, updates that, uh, that that start off the day. I mean, all of those are pretty pretty wild. Uh, individually, they're all pretty wild. Uh, and, uh, and and then we've got quite a few other uh, topics to cover as well in terms of what's going on, not just with uh, Elon, but the Fed and markets, uh, some claims uh, regarding uh, the vaccine as well, which are quite interesting. <laughs> the vax. Uh, we'll save those for a little later. But boy, we've got a lot. Uh, we've got a lot to hit. So uh, we'll get we'll keep going on it. I do want to mention that yesterday we were able to. Uh, fly and visit uh, Redding, California. That was pretty neat. Uh, after that, I was also able to uh, visit uh, with uh, one of the chief researchers over at ARK Invest, uh, Mr. Brett Winton. And I have to say, absolutely brilliant mind. I can't wait to share that interview with y'all. It was really nice to also be able to do that in person. I, uh, I'm i kind of tired, of, honestly, of the Zoom interview. I, I, think, uh, I think there's almost like nothing more painful uh, like if you had, then Zoom, quite frankly, like if you had to sort of line up uh, the pain of communicating with someone, I think you kind of go from like the easiest way of communicating with someone, which is texting, to making a phone call, to responding to a voicemail, to FaceTime, to like large gap scheduling a Zoom or Teams meeting and then sitting down with your lighting and your computer and, and being ready and all this nonsense and, and headphones and ready to get on a, some kind of Zoom call. Like, I get it. <laughs> it's part of remote working and it's part of sort of our culture. And in many ways, it's created many efficiencies. But uh, from a personal point of view, I have to rant about it a little bit because, uh, wow, <laughs> it just, uh, it does seem like the most painful way of communicating. And quite frankly, I'm finding some of these Zoom calls are, uh, and, and I, this is why I try to minimize them entirely because I think they're entirely inefficient. But it, it just seems like now we've almost gotten into this weird like culture where something that could literally be handled with the text message, people are now trying to set up Zoom calls for. And I'm like, this is ludicrous. Uh, for example, and, and, and I love them. I think they do fantastic work, uh, you know, but I talked to, talk to a banker and, uh, oh my gosh, 
<laughs> it went to, hey, uh, can we set up a Zoom call to uh, to talk about uh, the accounts? And, and I'm like, oh, is is everything okay? Like, like what's wrong? Why, why do we have to talk about the accounts? Uh, and they're like, oh, we just wanted to make sure you got the new accounts set up with your user ID. I'm like, yeah, like, got that a week ago for these new accounts we created. And, like, it's fine. If there was a problem, I would have let you know. I didn't need to schedule a potential Zoom call for that. Oh, hey, how are you doing? How's this? How's the well? All this bull crap is, is so inefficient. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to... Uh, and it's it's a constant revision process, right? Nobody's perfect. Uh, but uh, every every day, one of the things that I like to do is I try to think, okay, what can I do to optimize the way I'm uh, creating value for my businesses every day? And uh, one of the things that I find is substantially more efficient cutting out almost every form of communication except for in-person and text. Now, that's not to say phone calls aren't important. Get on the phone with attorneys, or, or uh, you know, our, our uh, investor relations team, or, or you know, CPAs, wh whatever. Obviously, there are times for that. I prefer in person, <laughs> but the last thing I want to do is sit on Zooms. I think out of all of the Zooms I've done this last year, they could have been replaced with like texting. Quite frankly, uh, so I'm a big fan of. Uh, of minimizing that sort of madness. I, I, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe I'm alone on that, but I'm so exhausted about, like, I, I, maybe, maybe leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I mean, like over the last year of the Zooms that you've been on, on the meetings, how many of them were just utter bullshit? <laughs> like a waste of freaking time. God. Yeah, somebody here writes, they just want to justify their jobs in the economy. <laughs> yeah. Zoom court, okay, I mean, I think there's some practicality to that. Uh, you know, I, I think that probably makes judges' lives a little easier, and, and this is something where you kind of have to get together with people. I don't know, but then again, I'm, I'm kind of in, I'm still a fan of, like, in-person. Zoom meetings with no live video, the best Zoom there is. I mean, then you basically just have a conference call. 70% <laughs> of them are a waste, 99% of them are a waste. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, like... I don't know, I find it wild, so oh, thank you for your commentary on that. So, uh, okay. Anyway. <sighs> oh, look, they're talking about Tesla. That's what I wanted to talk about next, how convenient. Let's listen in for a moment. Uh, these findings suggest that there were some certain scenarios where the car uh, might act in a way where the driver uh, couldn't uh, take over fast enough to avoid a crash or potentially break the law. So, uh, you know, fixing this in the software, a lot easier than, say, uh, having to bring it into a car dealership like a, a Chevy would do and have to change mechanical things, have to put in new equipment or something like that. So, uh, you know, kind of in short, a little kind of a win for Tesla because it doesn't have to turn the system off. It doesn't have to do any mechanical changes, but a black eye because uh, of the system's uh, defaults. What, what has Tesla said about the defaults? They agree with the government's assessment of it? Well, they would disagree. Uh, they pushed back on the government that, with the government's findings, but went forward with the, the voluntary recall here, which is often the case uh, in these things. When the NHTSA is going to do this, it's either do a voluntary or it can become much more messy down the road. So, you know, going back to Tesla traditionally says that these systems are safer than what the human can do. Uh, that's, you know, maybe perhaps in debate. Sometimes we don't understand where their data is coming from, but it gets to kind of the core um, of these systems. Are they about safety or are they about convenience? The criticism continues to be about Tesla and other systems like it is that the driver 
uh, thinks the system can do more than it is. It is not fully self-driving. The robot is not in control. The driver needs to be in control, needs to take back that wheel, needs to, to be engaged in the driving scenario. And oftentimes they get lulled into thinking the car is doing more than it actually is. Yeah, I mean, he's not hes not actually wrong about that. You have that same kind of issue in aviation where you get lulled into the idea that, ah, autonomy is taking everything over or you don't have to concentrate on anything. The good news is a lot of us using the autonomy technology today realize in Teslas, uh-oh, we're coming up on, uh, you know, potentially a dicey intersection or an area where I want to pay attention a little bit more and sort of activate your, your awareness and take over earlier. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, look, there's absolutely this argument to be made that if you rely too much on autonomy, all of a sudden your skills start waning and you're not actually able to respond appropriately in situations where it's necessary to take over from autonomy. But what's wild and why Tesla's actually getting all of this crazy coverage right now, I mean, they're still talking about it right here on CNBC. What's wild about this is apparently there was this recall that was issued. And it's literally just a software update, but people are freaking out over this. There's so much press going on over this. And I think it's remarkable. In fact, take a look at this. I got this text message yesterday. It says, hey, you might've heard this already, but it's on channel seven world news that Tesla is recalling 360,000 vehicles because of the self-driving feature potentially leading to accidents. Just a heads up. And I wrote, terrible recall that requires a horribly intensive automatic software update at night. <laughs> it's like, it's true. It's like, look, you don't have to take the darn thing in anymore. When I had a Toyota Prius and I had to take the sucker in for service, a pain in the butt. You take the car in after you set an appointment because now they want you to have an appointment. Then you go drop it off and you have to wait in line to talk to the person. And of course, when you go want to just drop off the damn keys, you can't do that because then they want to try to sell you because that's how dealerships make money. They got to sell you as much freaking service that you don't need as possible. Everything needs service. Every time you go in, there's something they got to sell you on. There's always something they have to sell you on. And, and you're a loser, is at least the impression, if you don't at least do some of it. Because, hey, you know, we've got this whole list of things that are wrong with your car, but you know, why don't we just chip away at it and maybe do like a quarter of it now and we'll save another quarter for next time. So that way you don't feel like a loser. You're still spending probably a quarter more than you should have spent, which should have been zero, right? Like the old school dealership model is just trash. It's so annoying. It's so inconvenient. Uh, and then you got to pick the darn thing up. And then how are you going to get back? Sure, you Uber, but then it's a pain in the butt because you got to wait 20 minutes for the Uber. And you're wasting so much time out of your day to bring a car to a dealership and then go back and get it. Or you're also wasting somebody else's time if they're driving you to drop you off, which then is even more ridiculous because now you're wasting two people's time. Terrible, terrible economic inefficiency. And so you have all of these sort of like, in my opinion, I'm just going to call, I'm going to call it what it probably is. Uh, traditional boomers who don't know much about software or have any care to learn uh, about anything Elon Musk touches. And so the thesis is, oh man, oh, the headlines say recall. There we go. We always knew the new stuff was bad. You just can't innovate. Can't, can't have good things. Nope. Recalls. That's right. Yep. Tesla. 
<laughs> getting screwed again. It's it's almost like people get happiness out. It's like I think it's like a, a, a Schadenfreude uh, a psychology of of Tesla. It's like like the 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 old guards kind of like <laughs> Elon losing again. <laughs> Another recall for the Teslas. <laughs> it's just like so stupid and annoying. Uh, it just drives me nuts. But ironically, what's happening now is you have this ironic network effect where the Tesla people are like, you're the idiot <laughs> who has to take your car into service, whereas we just press update <laughs> on the car. Uh, and in a weird way, it actually has this like, in my opinion, positive marketing effect. So even though initially it's like, it seems like all this negative press, I really think for Tesla, the argument of no press is bad press is great. I mean, Tesla doesn't have an advertising department because they don't need it. As soon as there's a software update, everybody freaks out calling it a recall. And then what happens? The defenders of Tesla are like, dude, it's a software update. And then people are like, oh, okay, well, well I still hate Elon. <laughs> it's like just so ridiculous. Uh, but, but that's just what's out there. Meanwhile, the Model Y is sold out for Q1. It's the first time these suckers have been sold out, uh, you know, in, for about six months, which is fantastic. Now the Model Y is sold out. They raised the price twice over just the last uh, uh, six weeks here after their initial price reductions. And now you also have Tesla having to respond to allegations about them uh, firing people who, uh, uh, you know, wanted to form a union in Buffalo, New York. Now, let, let's be real. And this is, this is just, uh, you know, sort of the thesis here. This is like the quiet part that probably shouldn't be spoken out loud. Let's be real. Tesla doesn't want unions, okay? Most most modern companies generally don't want unions because ultimately you're trying to automate away your labor anyway, okay? Like that's the long-term goal, right? I mean, think about it. During the pandemic, did we really need 5,000 math teachers teaching calculus on Zoom or did we really need one math teacher teaching calculus on Zoom and then 4,999 sort of helpers to help grade papers or whatever, right? Like you put the best teacher teacher on Zoom, they teach it, and everybody else, you know, sort of helps and, 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 and tutors as is necessary, rather than 5,000 different people trying to put together a, a Zoom lecture plan, right? So that is innovation that probably you should be seeing in education, but of course that means a lot of people lose their jobs. And so that's bad because people don't want to lose their jobs because then they have to learn something new. And that's very difficult to do, especially when you're in a groove and you're in a habit. And, and, and I mean, it's hard to to change with the times, right? And, and uh, I mean, nobody wants to see their job get replaced. That's the reality of it. So unions help protect labor from getting replaced. I kind of think about it like the industrial revolution, the Luddites, it's like, oh, we've got, uh, we've got machines coming in to sort our cotton. Hell no, let's go in and destroy the machines at night. Uh, and, and so you've got Luddites destroying machines during the industrial revolution because goodness gracious, what are we gonna do if we don't have the manual necessity uh, to, to actually separate the seeds from the cotton? Why would, why, why would we let machines do that? They're gonna bankrupt us all and we'll be broke and we'll have to learn to do something else. Of course, the goal is with innovation, you now have the ability to get another job that potentially pays you more money with less time. So for example, if you're making $30,000 a year and then all of a sudden you turn around and you realize, wait a minute, I could do some quality assurance work in a tech job and make twice as much money 
with half as much time, well now I got more now I got more money and I got more time to do something else, right? So innovation in a necessary way kind of forces you for a moment to go through a little bit of hardship, but then you end up better. You end up working less and you end up making more money. But unions, of course, and this isn't to just straight up bag on unions, but let's be clear about the incentive of a union. The incentive of a union is to survive. And if the goal of the union is to survive, then it survives more when it has more union members. The last thing a union wants is less union members because then you have less union dues and you have less power. But if union members are getting replaced by robots at Tesla, then the union's obviously gonna be pissed about the robots. It's just like the Luddites during the Industrial Revolution. But then, what happens when uh, Tesla sort of sees that writing on the wall or corporations see that writing on the wall and they're like, well, let's automate as quickly as possible so that we can replace labor before we can't replace labor anymore because the unions have vesting and mandatory employment and, and non-fire requirements, uh, you know, pensions and all these liabilities that essentially make companies unable to innovate again in the future. I mean, think about like, how do, you, how do you take a legacy company with massive pension liabilities like Ford or GM and turn them into an efficient, new, innovative company? You generally can't. Those companies have to die out. If they have unfunded pension liabilities, then the people end up getting screwed anyway out of their pensions. I mean, obviously there are insurance programs and things like that in, in, in place to sort of prevent the defaulting on pensions because those pension contracts are important, but ultimately it comes down to the, the company's guarantee because if the company goes bankrupt, you got big problems. But anyway, long and short of it is you have a society where the, the newest breed of companies, dare I say, uh, are relatively anti-union and one of the reasons they, in my opinion, are anti-union is because they realize in order to stay innovative, they have to be able to have labor flexibility. In other words, they have to be able to kill the need for labor because labor is, uh, I mean, very expensive. Let's <laughs> just put it that way. So anyway, these uh, labelers in New York uh, were was starting to work with a manager of a Starbucks who helped organize the Starbucks union effort. And that Starbucks union person essentially motivated somewhere around 25 people, potentially more, to put together a letter and send it to Elon Musk demanding that Tesla recognize their right to form a union. Now, employers have a choice to recognize a union unless the majority of uh, members of that company, uh, more than 50%, uh, basically vote for the union. Then the company is forced to recognize a union. So in the meantime, while a company is not forced to recognize a union, what happens is you end up getting this uh, this this place where a lot of companies don't want to. Uh, and so what ended up happening is after roughly about 25 people happened to file a, a letter saying roses are red, violets are blue, unions start with you, which was also where in the last time I pitched the fact that today is February 17th and there's a coupon code expiring at 11.59 p.m. Actually, it's a flash sale, it's not a coupon. Expiring tonight at 11.59 p.m. for the programs on Building Your Wealth uh, or the Shadowing Experience, that's linked down below. But anyway, uh, after they sent that, within a day of sending that letter on Valentine's Day, 25 of them got fired, 25, 26 of them got fired. Now, a day after that, uh, which is last night, Tesla responded with in response to false allegations. Uh, and then, so Tesla now is arguing there's a false allegation that Tesla terminated employees in response to new, a new union campaign. These are the facts behind the event. And let's just make it clear, okay? Tesla is not gonna come out and point blank say, yeah, we don't want unions. 
But I think I've just made the case that pretty much companies don't want unions. That's, that, that's obvious. That should be very, very obvious. And so anyway, Tesla as sort of a CYA, because you kind of have to do this, what do they do? Uh, you know, and of course, I don't know all the details. So this is just my opinion. I could be wrong, but let's just be clear. I mean, Tesla is talking about how they conduct performance reviews and just conveniently, uh, you know, the, the conveniently 4%, roughly 4%, wait, 4%, that's a little bit more than I thought. There were about 650 labor. Oh, no, that is about right. Yeah, that's 26 employees. Okay. Approximately 4% of the employees on the autopilot labeling team in Buffalo, New York, which by the way, I guess the minimum wage for that is like 19 bucks an hour. And you're literally just pushing a button like, yes, no, yes, no. Like la labeling what the AI sees is, is, is not, you know, it's not that difficult. Uh, and, and so I wish I had made $19 an hour <laughs> when, when, when I was, you know, 18 years old or 16 years old making smoothies at Jamba Juice or folding clothes at Hollister that people would just walk in and steal uh, at, 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 you know, 16 and making $7 an hour, but whatever. Anyway, so approximately 4% of the employees on the autopilot labeling team in Buffalo were exited as a result of this performance review cycle. The employees let go as part of this process received prior feedback on their poor performance. So it's kind of interesting. If that's true, then it's really convenient that basically the people who are trying to unionize may have also been the poor performers, which then it kind of makes you wonder, are poor performers people who want to unionize or do people want to unionize and Tesla's just saying they happen to be performers? It's kind of like a chicken or egg problem. And, and I'm curious to know what your opinion is. So, so leave me a comment on that. But uh, Tesla makes the argument, despite feedback, they did not demonstrate sufficient improvement. And as a result, before we even knew about this union, uh, unionizing effort that was happening, we basically fired 26 people uh, uh, or, or warned them that, hey, their performance wasn't up to par. Uh, and then after the union effort, the timing just happened to be very coincidental that we just happened to fire everyone involved in the effort right after the union effort uh, began. So it, it, really, really convenient for Tesla. You know, maybe, maybe what a company should do is just tell everyone that their performance needs to step up. So that way, if at any point they decide to unionize, you could just say, well, yeah, you're fired. And we're not, you're not fired because you're forming a union. You're fired because we told you to get better and you didn't get better. Yeah, well, you tell everyone to get better. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know, right? Uh, I'm just, look, whatever it is, I don't think, I, I think legal battles, whatever, legal battles take years. Before you see a union at Tesla, it, it probably will be 2028 20, or, or, or on. And, and by then you then start scratching your head like, okay, are we getting to a top of a growth cycle? Do you potentially then spin off divisions within Tesla to protect it from unionization by spinning off like the robot division from, you know, I don't know, uh, the, the robo taxi division, whatever. Do you start spinning these seg segments off to sort of insulate them from unionization? Who knows? There are plenty of corporate tricks that happen, but uh, yeah, it's awfully convenient that, um, that that these folks happen to be exited, which is such a like a fascinating word, by the way. Like, oh yeah, we we don't fire employees, we exit them. <laughs> uh, anyway, look, bottom line is generally, uh, and and this is you know opinion here, obviously, but there's plenty of research also supporting this. 
But generally, the impression is that unionization hurts innovation. That doesn't mean unions are bad. Obviously, it's important that employees are paid appropriately for the value they're providing. I think where unionization becomes problematic is when you uh, end up seeing uh, disruptive unionization, like what you're seeing in the United Kingdom, where you have either teachers unions or pilot unions or whatever, striking and creating more supply chain nightmares, especially in industries where there's already very nominal problems profit. The airlines are losing money hand over fist. They're highly indebted. They're basically on the brink of either mergers or collapse uh, because they, they, they have a very hard time actually surviving thanks to all of what? The labor costs. In fact, you have a lot of institutions today saying stay away from high labor, highly labor intensive businesses because well, there's more risk. The more labor you have, the more risk there is. And obviously then if you can have executives who can, who can get a lot done with minimal labor is, is more ideal. Uh, but uh, yet, yeah, it, it doesn't sound like uh, unionization and innovation tend to align very well. And so I think for the purposes of unions, I think they probably have to rebrand their reputation a little bit to make sure that they can actually prove to businesses, hey, look, you know, we actually are pro-innovation. Like, how do you innovate and, and transform unions from not innovative to innovative, right? That's probably something if I were, you know, leading a union, I'd, I'd be thinking about <laughs> because I, I, I don't think... Uh, uh, the, the the common theme today is, yeah, unions. I, I think that's kind of gone by the wayside, mostly, especially for people sort of outside the, the system. So uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. So uh, uh, let's see. Garrett, Garrett Hartle here says, unionization didn't hurt the building of America. A lot more of this country used to be unionized. Yeah, I, I mean, that that could be entirely causation without correlation, right? Just because uh, in the mid-19th century, every automaker that existed was unionized uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that unionization was good for America, especially given that basically every car company other than Ford, every law, legacy automaker other than Ford, ended up going bankrupt. Yeah, we could we could just as easily make the argument that unionization led to the bankruptcy as as did not prevent the building of America, right? So I I think uh, I think that's uh, that's a difficult uh, uh, difficult argument to make uh, with, with without uh, you know clear clear statistics. Uh, I think this is interesting. Steve, Steve makes the argument: 100% of poor performers want to unionize. Uh, to mooch the system, poor performers want to unionize, says Alex here. Uh, I, I mean, there's there's always the possibility uh, of that. Midnight King, email us at kevin at meetkevin.com. We can get you taken care of. But anyway, yeah, I mean, look, obviously there's there's no uh, there, there's uh, no real way to uh, I think make the blanket argument and and be correct that everyone who wants to be a union sucks or everyone who wants to unionize is great and innovative, right? It's obviously, as with everything, it's a mix of both. I think probably the, the argument that is often made is that, look, if, if you're in innovative technologies and ultimately you're trying to replace labor, just by the nature of wanting to innovate and minimize labor, you already stand in the face of what unions stand for. So unions stand for more labor, and businesses stand for less labor. So no matter which way you slice it, innovative companies will always be looking for ways to reduce labor and unions will always be looking for ways to increase labor. So from a first principles approach of the purposes of those two entities, one is diametrically opposed to the other. They will always stand in conflict with each other because their mission is exactly the opposite 
that makes for a very challenging environment and one that will continuously be uh, litigated forever. So I think really the, that's probably the only binary conclusion that you can make where it's like, yes, absolutely unions want more labor. Absolutely businesses want less labor. Now, the rest of that, well, that's to be debated. <laughs> but either way, again, the more Tesla sits in the news, the more Tesla ends up ironically selling vehicles. So it's fascinating just to see how Tesla has sort of mastered the world of, uh, of advertising without advertising. So congratulations, Tesla. Sorry to Charlie Munger. <laughs> now, there are also now some rumors going around that uh, Tesla is uh, potentially uh, leaking the Cybertruck body in, uh, in, in uh, this right here with Joey uh, 2000, potentially showing this, this frame over here uh, of uh, the side frame of a vehicle. I'm gonna play that again right here, but these are some rumors circulating. So if we move to this next clip right here, this is what some people say would be sort of wheel bay one, wheel bay two, Cybertruck side body, Cybertruck frame. Uh, who knows? We know that they've uh, started the process of manufacturing the Cybertruck and we expect the Cybertruck to actually be available uh, for its initial orders towards the end of 2023 and then more bulk orders in, uh, in, in 2024. Uh, there are a lot of rumors as well as to what's to happen with Tesla regarding the uh, the uh, March 1st Investor Day. Uh, a lot of folks believe that Investor Day obviously is going to be about uh, Elon Musk's Master Plan 3. Uh, Master Plan 3 is highly rumored to potentially include the announcement of a new vehicle platform. That could be RoboTaxi, it could be steering wheel list, maybe it's an optional steering wheel. Uh, you know, it could be some grandiose vision about what's to come in years down the road. There are a lot of hopes for that. I don't think whatever we hear on Investor Day is going to be something that practically or meaningfully changes our ability to buy anything from Tesla anytime soon, given that obviously we're still substantially in the ramping phase for the sexy vehicles, that's the S, the Model 3, uh, the X and the Y. And then of course we've got to get Cybertruck up and going. Uh, so it's probably still gonna be a while. I'm personally a little bit bearish on the, in, uh, the event, mostly because I, I, I don't like to get my hopes up and that's not because I'm a pessimist. I think I'm a, a very optimistic person, but I, I suppose just in, in history, uh, you know, whether it's battery day or AI day, the information we end up learning tends to be very nuanced and not very applicable to a large investor base or just sort of a large audience and tends to be uh, a little bit more uh, arcane, difficult to be understood by many, right? And uh, hopeful for the long-term future, which is fantastic. And, and those with the interest in that are probably going to love Investor Day. But I think broadly, if, if, if folks are betting on sort of some sort of big run, after Investor Day in the stock because of what's announced on Investor Day. It's not a bet I would make. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I would go in short before because you just never know, but it's probably not a bet that I would make, just given the history. Who knows? Maybe this time we'll be surprised. <laughs> uh, my boss thinks I'm stupid that I invest in Tesla. And then uh, Real George here says, mature people just don't want things to change. Well, I, I, I find that, uh, remember, your, your average customer for Tesla is between 25 and 45 years old and is statistically more likely to be a, a dude. Uh, I think that's because they, they really haven't come out with sort of a mommy-style vehicle yet. Uh, sure, you could claim that the X or Y would work, but um, 
once you ha once you have two kids and strollers, you need a lot of space. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I do find that at least anecdotally myself, it seems that uh, anyone of the older generations, older than than the millennial generation, so we're talking, you know, Gen X. Uh, you've got um, the boomer generation and, of course, the silent generation, which they don't say much. But anyway, the other two there, y you generally seem to have uh, a an aversion to what Elon Musk is doing. And I, I, I believe that a lot of that aversion to Elon Musk is actually shaped by, I hate to say it because it sounds a little tinfoil hat-esque, but by the mainstream media because of the headlines that are so negative towards Tesla that people, and, and I, I know this because I try to bridge the gap a little bit. When I get my newspapers, because I actually physically get newspapers, Financial Times, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Post is in there, you know, whatever, I get, I get all these. It's very, um, let's just say it's, 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 it's easy to throw Elon Musk, Tesla, and negativity on the front page and frequently makes the front page. And, and I don't think there's much critical thought that often goes on beyond a media narrative, which is not an insult, it's just sort of the way things have been. And it's unfortunate, definitely is unfortunate, but uh, so it is. All right, so uh, let's do a little bit of commentary here. Let's just see, I wanna see what everybody's here saying. Uh, they've already debunked the rumors on the truck. Oh, is that true? Tesla minibus? Who knows? <laughs> you know, I think that might be other individuals uh, responding and analyzing. I don't think when you say they, it's Tesla has debunked rumors, <laughs> but who knows? Uh, either way, I don't think it makes such a terrible difference, but that's uh, that is interesting. All right, so let's see. Because your job is guaranteed, you will you will not succeed outside of it. I used to work at a union job. The problem is your job is guaranteed, which makes you stay at the job. I have had colleagues who left the job for good, but ended up failing and coming back. Oh, that's unfortunate. Uh, someone writes here, unions add unnecessary inefficiency to our economy. Hmm. Then you've got another one. Here in Colorado, many concrete companies can't hire people because they abuse their employees. Would a union help that? Oh, that's, I mean, I don't think anybody should work for a company where they're getting abused. Uh, yeah, that's it's, it's unfortunate. Mm. I've been getting really good lately at spilling coffee while I'm streaming. Anyway, uh, someone else writes here, my theory uh, is that I'll downturn for the rest of the month until we hear from more of the, of the voting members of the Federal Reserve. Ooh, you're talking about the markets. Talking about the markets. Yeah, we'll talk about the markets here shortly. But um, uh, our next FOMC meeting isn't until uh, March 22nd. And we probably won't won't get as much clarity as we're looking for until then when we get a new summary of economic projections. Although personally, I'm super excited about the next data sets that we have for specifically um, January uh, or, or rather February inflationary numbers. I, I, I think January has this insane seasonal effect. But who knows? Who knows? Unions are legalized blackmail. Oh, well, there you go. Some pretty strong opinions here on both sides. <laughs> what do you think about all of the EV commercials during the Super Bowl? I liked the, tr I thought the premature electrification one was funny. 
I, I don't think it was effective, but I thought it was funny. Uh, if anything, I think uh, it probably uh, steers more people towards Tesla. Uh, just because you do have such a strong uh, supercharging network. Which obviously is now opening to others. Uh, towards the end of the year, it might be, uh, might be widely open to uh, everyone. Which I think will be really interesting because I have a hard time finding a spot at the supercharger when I go somewhere. And if now everyone with an EV can use it, I have no idea how they're going to solve the congestion issues at the superchargers. I have absolutely no idea. It's already way too congested with Teslas. I mean, I remember back when I got my Model X, there was like nobody at the supercharging stations because it was just X's and S's. I mean, $100,000 vehicles, right? Uh, 80 to 100,000. And now, you know, since the Model 3 went into uh, large scale production along with the Model Y, it's always full. So I don't know how you go from already super long waits for superchargers to opening it up to everyone and not actually ruining the experience even more. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how they're going to pull that off. Uh, you know, potentially it, that means increasing the rates for charging because the demand is so high, but then are you potentially punishing Tesla owners? I, I don't know. I, I get the idea and the billions of dollars uh, of, of subsidies because of the politics of this, but, uh, and, and I think it's the right choice for Elon and Tesla to open up the supercharger network, but dealing with the congestion is, is going to be a very challenging issue. Very, very challenging. All right, so brief look at the markets and then let's go ahead and pop over to uh, some more things that we've got to talk about. So brief look at the markets. So you've got 10-year treasury yield sitting at 3.89%. You've got most indices down. Yeah, it looks like actually everything's down. You've got Dow down about half, S&P two-thirds, NASDAQ down almost 1%. WTI oil down though about 3% as there's a talk about that as potential of a slowdown. So uh, pre-market movers right now, you've got DraftKings up 8%, Carvana up 4 although it's back to $11, which means it's already lost 50% from some of its meme movements. And uh, Airbnb, Tattooed Chef, Corsair Gaming, some of these are rotating down by about 3% along with Redfin. And what else uh, do we have here? So we're getting into the pre-market, Tesla down 1%, and Upstart down 2%, although that's had quite a bit of a move there. Taiwan Semiconductor is holding on to 90 bucks, sitting at uh, down 1.6%, and end phase down at 202. Ooh. All right. Next stop. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is an interesting one. All right. Let's pop on over to this particular letter that just came out, and I'll catch up first on the latest here. Stand by five seconds. Now we briefly have to revisit the madness of, yes, the COVID vaccines. Look, a few weeks ago, I posted a video about this Wall Street Journal article talking about the deceptive campaign for bivalent COVID boosters. That video went on to get over 900,000 views in a matter of just two weeks, knocking on the door now of a million views on a video. And that's because this, this particular piece by an editorial board member of the Wall Street Journal goes as far as calling the bivalent COVID booster advertising campaign as basically 
deceptive advertising, alleging that the CDC and uh, the FDA basically pre-approved the COVID, uh, bivalent COVID vaccines before actually having the appropriate studies. In fact, they suggest that the studies by Pfizer and other companies like Moderna were essentially timed and engineered to purposefully make the results seem more desirable and make the studies seem more efficacious to convince or manipulate the CDC and the FDA to approve the bivalent COVID vaccines before they were actually studied as both, quote, safe and effective. Now, we'll talk about safe in just a moment, but regarding efficacy, it's worth noting that only after the FDA and the CDC approved the bivalent COVID boosters, the CDC posted a study in November, which was already well into sort of flu season, if you will, revealing that the bivalent boosters were basically only 22 to 43% effective against the BA5 wave at their peak efficiency. However, that efficiency dropped to nearly zero within just a few weeks of taking these vaccines, these boosters. And usually a vaccine is only deemed efficient if it is 55 to 70% efficacious. But unfortunately, it seems most of these boosters were actually found to be nominally effective, that is 23 to 43% in the CDC's own studies, which is a slap in the face to the fact that they basically pre-approved these vaccines. And because of this sort of campaign of everybody needs to get boosters, they didn't sort of want to lose credibility in U-turn, despite the fact that the facts revealed these boosters were not effective. And so this, this particular coverage of this piece went pretty far. Now, part of the reason uh, this, this uh, I think this video did quite well is because we were also able to find plenty of information and studies from the medical community suggesting that maybe one of the reasons boosters for COVID just aren't that effective is because of this biological phenomenon known as immune imprinting, where basically your body, every time it sees a new booster, it just creates more antibodies to the original strain and not the boosted strain. And so this video did quite well, uh, and, and it really shared sort of some light into this, the, the, the way uh, the pharma industry is really perpetuating this idea that, oh, everybody should just continue to get boosters and shots and boosters and shots and boosters and shots despite the fact that biological science suggests, no, that's probably not actually the best, especially when these new boosters aren't even necessarily effective. But now we have new, uh, sort of this, this new letter out, which is really interesting. This is uh, actually from the uh, Health Freedom Defense uh, Fund. Now it's worth, I always like to start with any kind of bias uh, from a company. It's worth notice, uh, uh, noting that this, uh, I believe is set up as a nonprofit, but anyway, it's an organization that fights for the freedom to choose, uh, sort of biological autonomy, they call it. They've actually won lawsuits against the CDC and the Biden administration, forcing the end to certain mask and vaccine mandates. Uh, and uh, now one of the things that's worth remembering is that there was this massive during the COVID era, uh, massive, uh, dare I say, vilification campaign of, you know, anti-vaxxers, right? Like, oh, you're basically the, the, the mainstream media narrative was always, oh, if you're anti-vax, you're an idiot, right? Uh, and now what you're finding more and more is that, wait a minute, why, why are we potentially seeing increases of of heart attacks in individuals who were of younger uh, age, and especially younger males. You're especially seeing that 
uh, amongst, uh, you know, 20, 21 year old uh, males as a median age of individuals who generally don't have heart problems or, or myocarditis or heart attacks or whatever. And you're suddenly seeing an increase in that. And this is why one of the trending things we've been seeing has been the quote or trend sudden death on Twitter, because why all of a sudden are younger people dying more? Why are there more excess deaths? Now, we'll uh, look at uh, what CBS News has to say about that in a moment, which, you know, gives you sort of the other side of the narrative, which uh, does make you raise your eyebrows a little bit in terms of, wait a minute, what is happening in mainstream media? But at least to Health Freedom Defense Fund, they're suggesting that, look, hey, when we realized that people were getting concussions in the NFL and brain injuries, we acted to try to make sure we have more protective protocols. Well, now it's time for the NFL to potentially start looking into COVID-19 vaccines, especially after the increase in cardiac arrests, heart attacks, and strokes among NFL players. And of course, the Health uh, Freedom Fund puts together a set of uh, multiple different research suggesting that, hey, we're starting to see more cardiac-related car uh, mortality following COVID-19 vaccines, seeing potentially uh, rare but fatal uh, thrombosis, uh, uh, higher frequencies of myocarditis in males with a median age of 21. Uh, and, and they link to a, a lot of their research and information, which of course we could sort of independently go through. But basically this fund is now calling on the NFL to make sure that they no longer downplay the effects of myocarditis and actually potentially start pre uh, screening NFL players and younger males for the potential evidence that maybe many more people have myocarditis than we actually are aware of. And an interesting thing is that myocarditis, at least according to this piece, has always been deemed dangerous and a serious health concern until the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, all of a sudden, the narrative is to actually downplay how important myocarditis is. And then it makes you wonder, like, my goodness, how much money is being thrown at downplaying something that used to be deemed serious and is now being downplayed because it happens to potentially be a side effect of the COVID-19 vaccines, which is quite interesting, especially since heart attacks are substantially up in younger males. Now, we'll see that actually corroborated by the mainstream media, but their counter-argument is a little bit of an eyebrow raiser, which I'll play here in just a moment. But anyway, this particular uh, organization here is calling on the NFL to realize that, look, initially they were part of increasing vaccine uptake, but now it's time to maybe realize maybe that wasn't the best of ideas. And maybe we need to start screening people who have been vaccinated for myocarditis, even if they don't yet have symptoms, to potentially prevent uh, uh, more damage in the future or more accidents or deaths in the future. But anyway, here's a piece from CBS News where, take a listen to some of the statistics that they provide. And, and then, uh, yeah, we'll add some more commentary. So let's go. And across all age groups since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. But a recent study found that young people are actually most at risk in this case. According to Cedars-Sinai Hospital, the number of heart attack deaths among 25 to 44 year olds in the US over the first two years of the pandemic was 30% higher than predicted. Dr. Celine Gounder is here on set with us uh, to talk more about it. She's editor-at-large for public health at Kaiser Health News, and she is also an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist and a CBS News medical uh, contributor. Dr. Gounder, thank you for being here. Uh, what stood out to you in this study? 
I think the fact that you're seeing such a big increase specifically in the youngest age group, so the 25 to 44-year-olds, you saw this 30% increase in the risk of death from heart attack. And that really is quite striking. That's not a group, an age group, in which you normally see heart attacks, much less dying from a heart attack. So the, the, to do uh, a study like this, you look at the years prior to the pandemic and the typical rate of heart attack death in that age group, and then you see it increase, and you wonder, what's the new variable? And so the pandemic is that new variable? So just keep in mind really quickly what, we, what we're learning here, right? CBS News is saying, look, hey, all of a sudden after the pandemic, a lot more young people are having heart attacks. And obviously, there is a plethora of research suggesting, well, maybe it's because of myocarditis. Now, it'll probably still be years before we have official and, and finalized data and evidence that, yeah, you know what, it's definitely the vaccines that are doing it. But right now, it kind of looks like it's the vaccines that are leading to an increase in myocarditis, especially since research that we're finding suggests, wait a minute, people who just get COVID naturally and not the vaccine, aren't seeing an increase in myocarditis. Now, mainstream media so far has taken the stance that, yes, we are indeed seeing an increase in sudden death and heart attacks. But now, listen to what they think the cause is. And it's just interesting, because while I don't want to make any conclusions here, I want you to be aware of both sides of the narrative. One side says, it's definitely the vaccines. Now, you're going to hear the mainstream media response to what's actually leading to more heart attacks and sudden death. That's right. So these uh, researchers looked at 10 years of data across the U.S., all the death certificates that get filed with the CDC, uh, that data. And so what they saw is prior to the pandemic, heart attack deaths were actually dropping. And then that trend reverses, and you see those deaths go up, especially among that youngest age group during the pandemic. And do we know why the why younger people might be more at risk? Or we don't know for sure. And in fact, these death certificates are probably not even capturing the fact that they might have had COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really just saying, did you die from a heart attack or not? Um, what we do know, however, is that younger people were less likely to protect themselves against COVID than older people, less likely to mask, less likely to take other mitigation measures. And they were also farther back in line to get vaccinated. So they were not protected with vaccination until later in the pandemic. Those might have been a factor here. Wait a minute. Listen, listen to the argument that she just made. The argument she just made is maybe younger people are dropping dead of heart attacks more because they had to wait longer to get vaccines and were less likely to wear masks. So in other words, this person's narrative is if you didn't wear a mask and you ended up getting COVID, now you're more likely to die of a heart attack. When the statistics that we're seeing so far and the research we're seeing so far is that, wait a minute, the vaccines maybe aren't actually safe and effective. When we actually think about the biological fact that the proteins that are injected into you from these vaccines that go directly to your heart could lead to inflammation in your heart. So we know that the vaccines lead to an inflammation in your heart and potentially myocarditis. But no, if you didn't wear a mask, now you're at a higher likelihood of dropping dead from a heart attack. That's a really stretchy argument there and I don't buy it now I'm not trying to be tinfoil hat but I think you can make your own conclusion here and there's more research to be done okay providing value on it
but just think for a moment about the two narratives, okay? One narrative, well, first of all, both sides agree more young people are dying of heart attacks and are dropping dead after the pandemic. One side is saying it's the vaccines because biologically we could see myocarditis can happen within days of getting a shot and the incidence of myocarditis spikes within about two weeks of getting a shot, a vaccine. And the other side is saying, well, maybe more people are dying of heart attacks because they got COVID and they didn't wear masks and they're younger and they were further, they had to wait longer to get the vaccines. So maybe had they been able to get the vaccine sooner, they wouldn't have actually myocarditis, which it just seems like the craziest anecdote and, and unfounded in research, but, but whatever. Those are the arguments. It seems wild. I really want to know what you think about it all. So leave me a comment and let me know what you think. Uh, but uh, I want to give a shout out here to an individual who left a comment. I was fired from my job for not getting the vaccine, forced to sell my house, wasn't able to eat out at restaurants for two years, wasn't able to take a train, plane, or ferry for two years. Uh, I was called a misogynist and a racist by the prime minister for my choices. Wow. That's unfortunate. I'm sorry I had to go through that. That's crazy. But anyway... I'm just going to leave it there. I'm going to let y'all make uh, uh, your own decision because if I make too many conclusions, I'm going to end up getting banned from YouTube. All right. So anyway, now obviously we've got to do a little bit of uh, talking about markets as well because uh, we've got some madness here after PPI. So we're going to do a little bit of diving into that and then we'll get into the course member live stream. Markets are selling down slightly more and uh, right now. I'm very curious to see how markets end up moving once the day progresses. Uh, we obviously ended up uh, quite red with some uh, institutional selling towards the end of the day yesterday. I want you to remember that if you see large buying at the end of the day or large selling at the end of the day, it's generally institutions. Uh, institutions do most of their buying at either uh, or selling at open or close. That's when there's the most liquidity. So when you tend to see those sudden downtrends towards the end of the day, it's usually because all the institutions uh, reconciling their outflows are dumping all at the same time. So that's my expectation of what happened here yesterday. And I think you could see that align because look at that. As soon as you hit 12 o'clock on the five minute candle, what happened in the last hour of trade? Volume. You see that right here at the bottom? Volume skyrockets, stocks straight down the entire last hour of the day. That just shows you an example here, for example, on Tesla. But you see the same thing on QQQ. You see the same thing on the SPY. And I mean, look at the volume on the SPY. Huge spikes going into that last hour of trade. So very, very, very typical to see institutional selling, which could be... Uh, which could be a sign of outflows from retail, but is probably more institution hedge fund driven. Uh, but we'll see. We will see how the day goes today. All right, now we got to talk about the Fed. The Fed, the Fed, 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 Fed. Fed, Fed, Fed. All right, one sec. 
We gotta talk about the Federal Reserve because my gosh, there is a lot of news about the Federal Reserve suggesting that's it, this is it. We're going back to 50 basis points and in this video, we gotta talk about the reality about what's going on with the Fed because the regular narrative that you're seeing at least in headlines, in my opinion, is blatantly false. But we're going to review all of the information and data together. First, it's worth noting that people are bearish especially in the institutional world. I think on one hand, that's because a lot of institutions were caught off sides. They were caught very cash heavy or very short heavy. And as a result, when the January rally came around, they had to save face and argue, no, this is just a bear market rally. This isn't reality. In fact, we have seen the most amount of short covering in January that we have seen since April of 20. 20. That's insane. So a massive amount of short covering, uh, short covering again, the likes of which we haven't seen since April of 2020. I could show that to you statistically. The higher the line goes on the chart you're seeing right now uh, is short covering. Uh, and uh, you could, uh, oh, sorry, I said April of 2020. It's actually since the meme rally of January of 2021. Forgive me the highest short covering since the meme rally of 21, which obviously that says something because the meme rally of 21 had some insane short covering. But look at this on a chart basis. Short covering shows you when the line goes up, you've got the highest short covering. And the short covering is insanely high right now. And again, I think that's because here in January of 2023, uh, we had most institutions thinking, okay, first half of the year is going to be hell. We're going to go into a recession. It's going to be very, very choppy. Let's keep our short positions when uh, we actually ended up seeing the market do substantially well in January, leading to a lot of short covering. And then of course, the safe phasing, oh, well, uh, or, or uh, face saving attitude of, oh, well, it's just a bear market rally. And sure, maybe that might end up proving to be true. But I think a lot of institutions are looking at everything right now to suggest, oh, yep, things are a lot worse than maybe they are. But who knows, maybe things are worse. But one of the narratives that's spinning up right now is this idea that Loretta Mester and Mr. Bullard are calling for a 50 basis point hike. And a lot of folks are saying that's it. This is going to be the moment where the Federal Reserve actually U-turns and goes from 25 basis points, which they dropped to only raising rates 25 basis points, and they go back to 50 basis point hikes. And the narrative is they are going to U-turn to 50 basis point hikes because the data is coming in stronger, when the reality is actually different. Both Loretta Mester and Mr. Bullard have always been calling for front-loading rates. In fact, Mr. Bullard was calling for getting to four or 5% with increments of 100 basis point hikes for over a year. He's been calling for getting to 5% or 4% for over a year, potentially using 100 basis point hikes. So it's not like all of a sudden, Loretta Mester and Bullard are like, oh yeah, let's go for 50 basis point hikes because PPI and CPI came in hot. That's not actually what happened. However, institutions are spinning that narrative and now you're seeing all of these mainstream headline articles suggesting, oh my gosh, 50 basis points might be coming back. They literally haven't changed their opinion at all. They've been of this same mindset every single meeting. Higher, 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 higher. 
and they've been always calling for 50. They were not fans of 25. Even though everybody ultimately agreed at the Federal Reserve, hey, we're going for 25, the individuals screaming the loudest right now aren't even necessarily voting members of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee right now. But aside from going down through the nuance of exactly who's voting and their biases or whatever, I think it's important to remember that because institutions are caught offside, you have a lot of negativity towards this rally. Now, that's not me suggesting that absolutely this rally is justified. Some things, especially at certain companies that do not have a lot of profitability, in my opinion, shouldn't be rallying the way they are. That's okay. What's important to pay attention to, though, is the actual trend of CPI and PPI. And I think the data is quite useful to look at here. So here's a piece from Barclays, uh, Barclays that actually nicely lays out for us the deceleration that we're seeing on year-over-year -year CPI and PPI inflation. Yes, PPI came in hotter than expected, but look at the actual chart. Of course, we're going to get volatility. Of course, we're going to see charts that are not just straight down. They never are. Look at them historically, going back to 2012, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. Look at how volatile these surveys are. They do this up and down and up and down and up and down all of the time. They are not smooth curves. There is no survey data that is a smooth curve. But what you're looking for is the longer run trend. Look at the longer run trend of 2012 to 2015. Stable. Even though you had a sink in 2015 and 16, if you continue the 2012 to 2015 trend, look at what you end up getting. Basically a continuation of inflation trends into 17, 18, 19, 20. Then of course we get the COVID pandemic. And this is where the trend changes. We have a clear trend up of inflation. But what do we clearly have now in terms of an inflection point? Even though data is noisy in the short term, what is the very clear trend on inflation? It is straight down. And again, there are going to be bumps along the way. We're going to get noisy data that shows indications that inflation is pushing up temporarily and it's not falling as fast as we like and every report isn't perfect and, and you know, coming in lower than expectations. But this is headline year-over-year -year CPI and PPI. Let's now jump on over to core measures. Core, okay? Less the volatile components, less food and energy. And what do we actually have? Look at this. All measures of PPI are showing a decline in inflation. All measures. Of course, some parts are still feeling a little bit more sticky than we would like. Of course, we're still dealing with some higher costs for longer. We know that. But what have I been saying regularly? And I'm going to now give you evidence for this as well. Uh, and I've also been giving you evidence. You should already know this, and I know part of this is going to sound redundant, but I want to say it to catch you up, and then I'm going to move on to some more evidence. I've been regularly talking about how companies are telling us inflationary pressures that still exist are expected to be gone by the second half of the year. Those are your industrials, your Pepsi, your Procter & Gamble, your, your consumer staples, right? Your Johnson & Johnson. Yes, there are still inflationary embers. We still have embers of inflation, but we're seeing those pricing pressures go away and expect them to be gone by the middle of the year. That's still going to take a while to show up in all the survey data, of course. There's a lag. 
That's logical. What are we seeing at companies that are hiring in labor-intensive fields? Wow, healthcare, not issuing signing bonuses anymore like they used to have because they actually have the availability to hire people again. What about uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, sectors within retail? Uh, it's easier for Starbucks to hire people. Chipotle, finding it easier to keep people and easier to hire people. You're seeing this consistently as a trend throughout company earnings. But Bank of America finally put out a piece, which I thought was very, very useful. Uh, and they mention in their piece over here. Take a look at this. I'll read you this paragraph right here. U.S. earnings call, and then this piece, by the way, just out. So yeah, this came out last night, February 16th right here. And I've been talking about this for weeks, but now I got a, a, an actual like institutional piece saying the same thing because I've been observing this in actually reading the earnings calls while Bank of America just went through with their little algorithms or whatever. And here's what they write. U.S. earnings call analysis suggests improving availability to hire. Mentions of, quote, improved labor availability or of, quote, ease of hiring, end quote, by management on earnings call ca calls continue to rise through the earnings season. So more of the commentary that is becoming easier to hire, easier to get labor. This is the same thing we saw, by the way, with Uber and Lyft, right? Uber and Lyft, what did they tell us? Massive increase in the supply of available la uh, uh, labor, leading to lower peak pricing, leading to lower margins, especially at Lyft. Anyway, to some extent, recent staffing cuts have further helped ease the labor market situation. Our analysis recorded a substantial rise in the mentions of layoff slash workforce reduction on earnings calls. Mentions per company were the highest for tech and financials, while industrial mentions are low compared to the last two cycles. Remember industrials like the uh, Johnson & Johnson, or sort of your more uh, in industrial producers, Procter & Gamble, they're kind of still in the, hey, we've got embers of inflation stage, hoping they're gone by the second half of the year. But you do also have companies like the aerospace sector, GE, Boeing, Embraer, they are still facing labor issues. That's probably the last sector that's going to recover. And generally, recessions align with when industrial layoffs are the highest. That is, in other words, like the worst, the worst is marked and demarcated by a peak in industrial layoffs. So they're usually the last to lay off. Uh, and, and they're still struggling. So in fairness, we're still in that phase where you're still seeing like aerospace and certainly the defense sector having struggles uh, to, to uh, uh, master uh, sort of their margins and inflation and labor embers. So you still have embers of inflation, right? But the trend now is down and that this, these embers are getting extinguished over time. Anyway, continuing with what was written here, mentions of wage growth and wage inflation on earnings calls are still near all-time highs, but modestly off the Q1 2022 levels. So in other words, you're seeing companies that are still saying, look, we still have higher wages. We still have higher wage inflation that we have to deal with in the face of margins, but now it's becoming easier to hire. and We're starting to see that inflection point, right? Which is great. And that's not to say that the Federal Reserve doesn't have to keep rates higher for longer, but it is to say that as we saw in the Barclays piece, we are clearly on an inflection point of inflation rotating down. Again, on screen now, again, the trend is clearly down. And certainly when we get 
uh, inflation data for housing start rotating down, we can actually maybe more meaningfully see this drag down. So yeah, 2023 is still going to be the environment of fighting the embers. But I personally believe the big wildfire of, oh crap, inflation's going to moon, the moon, this is hell, is over. The hell is over. But we still have the lava that hell left us with. And that is still feeding through our economy. We're still fighting those fires. But the trend is very clear that it doesn't appear inflation is going to be as horrible uh, as the 1970s. And inflation expectations say the same thing. Is it possible we're going to get a second wave of inflation? Yes, but I personally don't think so. You do see that there is an alignment, and this is actually does give credence to the idea that maybe there would be a second wave of inflation. You do have uh, a similar, you, you have sort of this environment where inflation tends to be worse in countries with excess savings. Uh, and inflation tends to be worse in countries with less excess savings. When we look at, for example, Spanish inflation and, 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 and sp uh, inflation in Spain, one of the things that you're actually seeing is when you have elevated inflation in Spain, uh, it's when savings are higher. But excess savings in Spain have fallen a lot quicker than excess savings in other countries. And what's interesting is as those excess savings in other countries, or, or rather in Spain, has come down, here's a chart, for example, of excess savings in Spain. You can see at the top right, Spain's excess savings rate has plummeted relative to other countries like Germany uh, or the United Kingdom, Ireland, the Netherlands, blah, 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 blah. As you see excess savings shrink in Spain, you're actually seeing inflation in Spain fall a lot quicker. And so to some regard, we still have a lot of excess savings as well in the United States, but the excess savings rate is falling. People still aren't buffering their excess savings the way they had been, certainly not during the pandemic. So yes, it is true that, and it should be obvious, right? It should go without data, but it, yes, more savings leads to more inflationary pressures. And the reality is, People still have a lot of excess savings. We went through this yesterday, statistically showed that Bank of America suggesting that people with an average bank balance of two and a half thousand to five thousand dollars now have an average bank balance. Uh, this is pre-pandemic, right? Pre-pandemic now have an average bank balance of twelve point eight thousand dollars. And it's only fallen four point four percent over the last year. So there's still a lot of excess savings out there, right? But the new rate of the rate of growth of excess savings is now negative, which is good. And hopefully that means we can reiterate the downtrend without a second wave of inflation. It does not appear based on daily research that we're conducting that China is going to be somehow this magical double inflationary push. What people are spending money on in China seems to be local travel and entertainment, not necessarily solely on goods and services where we expect supply chain nightmares. Again, supply chains are very, very loose right now, uh, which is good, especially and, and certainly becoming looser and looser. That doesn't mean there still aren't problems, but they're becoming a lot looser. Automotive still has some supply chain issues. But look at this chart as well. This is a, uh, a, a chart that basically shows you PPI overlaid with uh, operating margins and guide on operating margins. And you basically see that as PPI is coming down, margins are coming down as well. Uh, and that's actually really interesting because it suggests a, a lack of potentially pricing power at companies to continue to pass on higher costs and actually preserve their margins. So even though PPI is falling, 
you are also seeing margins come down. And that suggests that we should continue to see a decline in CPI, consumer price inflation. Because again, the buffer of, uh, of basically cost is not solely the consumer paying more. But it's, it's actually the consumer saying, I'm not paying anymore, and then companies taking it in the margin. We've regularly been talking about companies taking it in the margin. And I think this graph really represents that to us, that as uh, forward margins are coming down, PPI is coming down, and you see this sort of happen together. Now, at some point, uh, or, or some argument can be made that, well, margins aren't falling as quickly as they should, suggesting that, you know, maybe uh, either... Uh, uh, companies are able to still pass on pricing or they're becoming more efficient. I hope the truth is companies are becoming more efficient and that's what we're seeing via layoffs. We'll see. There's still though uh, what, what some companies are calling a lot of excess bloat. I found that very interesting. There's this argument that companies like Meta, so Facebook, have a lot of excess uh, headcount and what they basically did is they calculated uh, earnings uh, or sales growth, so revenue growth for companies and they compared that to pre and post layoff employee growth. And they found that Facebook still has 20% more workers than their sales growth would justify after the layoffs. Amazon still has 24% excess workers. Microsoft still has 1% excess workers. And companies that have actually laid off more than their growth are companies like Google and uh, Salesforce, which have actually potentially become more efficient uh, via layoffs. Then uh, and, and their sales growth has actually now exceeded their employee and headcount growth. So kind of interesting. So obviously we'll see. I'm of the big believer that yes, things in 2023 are going to be very, very noisy. So sort of bottom line out of everything, I'm reiterating uh, that even though we're getting all this noisy, noisy, noisy data, I think it continues to reiterate what we're talking about with the Nike swoosh, which unfortunately the Nike swoosh in this case is not very smooth and we never expect it to be. I've always drawn it as a crazy swiggly line. So yes, expect, expect the madness. But I think as the analysts we talked about yesterday are starting to say, maybe buy the dip is back, right? Maybe buy the dip is back because the trend is slowly towards a repaired economy, not an economy that's necessarily going into the 1970s and runaway inflation. All right. Uh, let's see here what else we have. Uh, let's look at a few commentary here. A little bit of commentary, and then we're going to hop on over into the uh, course member live stream. The year of the robot jobs. <laughs> my Bank of America account is big because I haven't paid my 2022 taxes yet. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, Reddit IPO. Oh, that'd be interesting. I'd be interesting to see how they actually make money. Great analysis. Uh, great in-depth analysis. Thank you for saying that. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, if populism trends continue and the economy shifts from monetary to fiscal dominance, dominance, can't an argument be made that it's just cyclical deflationary, uh, that this is just a cyclical deflationary downtrend with a new secular uh, inflationary trend? Okay. In English, we have an individual here that is saying... Jerome Powell ain't going to be the man with the money printer anymore. It's going to be politicians because people like Gavin Newsom win elections when they send you stimmy checks. So isn't it therefore possible that we're going to get more government handouts in exchange for votes and that could end up creating inflation again? Possibly. But 
the beauty, at least in America, about our broken political system is that we actually love that it's broken in that it's very difficult to continue to print money from a fiscal authority and fiscal regime because you have gridlock. And it's almost by design that the two-party system in a republic is very gridlockish because it forces the government not to overstep and print money in exchange to vote in exchange for votes because you have a counter trend that balances that out and gridlock makes it so that congress really only acts when they have to when there's bipartisan agreement like when the covid pandemic first hit you had a lot of bipartisanship because everybody realized oh crap we're about to walk into hell now obviously they overdid it but now because you have gridlock again i actually think you are not going to see that sort of fiscal regime taking over that you're talking about. I appreciate the question. I think it's a good question. Uh, Well-structured question too. It's definitely a, a, like, a, like a you know, graduate college level of writing there. Uh, but uh, in English, my response is no. And that's because we have designed gridlock to prevent exactly what you're talking about. Unless of course you're in moronic California, which yes, that does in part, make me a moron because I'm living in California. But you know what? I'm a moron living in some of the best weather in the world. So I'll take it. <laughs> uh, but again, my justifications for living in California are not the topic of this discussion. <laughs> but look at California, where in response to your question, you actually do not have uh, a system that has gridlock. In California, you have no gridlock. You literally have a supermajority of Democrats in the assembly, a supermajority of Democrats in the Senate, and then of course, and then all Democrats, right? And then you have a Democrat governor. So obviously the only way you could get anything done in California is if you're a Democrat. California is a one party state. And what does that one party state do? Well, it actually literally does what you just said. California, the idiotic one party state sends inflation relief stimulus checks in the greatest era of inflation to buy votes because they're complete morons. But that's what you get when you have one party rule. Thankfully, you do not have one party rule in America. And so if you are, if you ever find yourself frustrated about gridlock in Congress, I want you to think about California and think about how in California, you can have a governor who has all the power in the world, all the power in the world. The California governor is the most powerful person that exists because they have complete control over every institution. The judges basically do whatever the governor wants because that governor who might become president would appoint them as federal judges. And that's what they want. The governor has complete control over the Democratic Party because they have a super majority of control in California. And guess what happens when you have one party control? You hand out stimulus checks in the most expensive inflationary regime under the guise of, well, we have to give the money back if we don't spend it. And what do you not have? Great schools, great healthcare, or great mental education. In fact, you've probably got the worst homeless crisis on your hands in California, the worst crime crisis on your hands in California, where law enforcement feels handcuffed to do anything because of the policies of California. Uh, homelessness has just gotten worse under the this sort of supermajority of democratic control. And our schools are ranked 40th in the nation. So congratulations, California. Your one-party control and fiscal power is really winning. How's that for an answer to a question? Hopefully you got your money's worth being a member of the channel.
<laughs> anyway, I'm going to go now. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I've got to go to the bathroom, make another cup of coffee, and then we're going to run over to the course member live stream. Thank you so much for being here. I hope to see you again tomorrow. As always, I try to start streaming around 4.30 a.m., although the last two days that's been closer to 5.30 a.m. I'm trying to get back to 4.30, uh, and that's because I've been flying a little bit and kind of messed up my schedule a little bit. But I'm working on fixing it. And uh, thank you all for being here. We'll see you all soon. Goodbye.